If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This is uh, part two of our, for 2021, of our annual Summer in the Psalm series. Last week, Nathan kicked us off. This week, we're going to look at Psalm 103 together. Um, we'll cover this for the next several weeks. Different psalms from different genres. We try to do different genres um, every year. This one is a Thanksgiving psalm, as we will look at. And then we'll get in, back into Exodus and hopefully be in the stretch run of our two-year journey uh, through Exodus. But today we're going to be in Psalm 103. And I want to do something a little different, all right? A little different. Um, I want to do some responsive reading, okay, so with this psalm. And so what we'll do is I'm coming out of the English Standard Version, um, but it'll also be behind me on the screen. And what we'll do is I will read the odd number verses, so I'll start us off in verse 1, and you guys will read the even ones. You guys have done responsive reading before, right? I mean, so um, you don't have to be as timid as the early service was, all right? Um, and so I know you've been standing, but let's go ahead and just stand while we do this in reverence for uh, God's Word. Psalm 103, I will read the even, or <laughs> I will read the odd, and you will read the even. Okay, so I'll start in verse 1, then you pick it up in verse 2, etc. All right, you, re- you guys ready to do this? All right, so pumped. All right, God's Word says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Amen. This is God's word. May God write his eternal truths on all of our hearts. You may be seated. Thank you. That was excellent. I want you to think for a moment, if you will, about the most beautiful, magnificent, awe-inducing place that you've ever visited. 
Could be a glassy, clear ocean or lake. Could be a towering waterfall or flowing river. Could be mountains or rolling hills. It could be the expansive sky on a clear night. Perhaps there's a blanket of snow or maybe towering trees or expansive forests. Whatever it was, I want you to also consider what kind of feelings or emotions being at that place induced in you. Did your heart race? Were you rendered speechless? Did it induce praise to God for his amazing works in creation? I've been blessed to see, maybe as you have too, see many different beautiful sceneries in my life. I grew up in Colorado. If I want to see the mountains, all I have to do is look west. I I was stationed in Alaska, as you know, for three years. I can look east and see the mountains. I can look west and see the inlet. I could drive 15 minutes south and see the water flanked by the mountains. I could drive downtown and uh, see a moose walking across the street like it was just another pedestrian. And while I was never, I never ceased to be amazed at the beauty of Alaska, I wonder if the locals felt that same kind of way. By that I mean, for someone who grew up in Alaska, and, and that's all they know, I wonder if they at some point just kind of got used to seeing those things that an outsider would consider breathtakingly magnificent. Like, like for them, it was ordinary, right? It's just, this is where I've lived, this is where I grew up, I'm used to seeing this. You know, I, I sort of feel like that in, about Colorado in some respects. I, I'll see or hear about someone going there for vacation, I get it. But I'm not nearly as impressed as tourists are because I just grew up used to seeing it over time, you know what I mean? I was thinking, you know, in a more silly example, I was thinking of like Bucky's, you know, that gas station in Warner Robins? Like, I lived in Texas for almost a decade, and like, I was just like, yeah, it's a gas station. And people here are like, this is the dopest place I've ever been, right? And it's like, well, I mean, like, you don't want to be a killjoy, but you're like, it's a gas station, right? But now, you don't get me wrong, okay, about Colorado. I, I think Colorado is a uniquely beautiful place, but I'm simply, you know, for better or worse, not as impressed as others who are not from there. And, you know, that will sound weird maybe to people uh, because they might go and be astounded by the beauty and ask, how could you get used to this? Like, how can you not be ceaselessly amazed? And I can't help but wonder, is this how many Christians are when it comes to how they see and worship God? Like, are, are they still amazed by his greatness and his deeds falling over themselves to offer him ceaseless praise, or has God sort of become a mundane buddy who we're simply not amazed by anymore? Have we, have we become so entrenched in the hustle and bustle of our busy lives that we simply don't have time to constantly consider who God is and what he's done? Has worship of him, I wonder if it's become anemic Or worse, has it become a consumeristic exercise in receiving rather than giving? Have we pushed God to the peripheries of our busy lives that we have relegated the transcendent creator to the fringes and portrayed him sort of as a cosmic genie in the bottle who's simply waiting with bated breath in the corner for us to call on him and beckon him to come and do something when we need it? You, you look at modern worship today, and I can't help but wonder, what happened? What happened? How did a gathering meant to put the focus utterly on God become a consumeristic exercise in entertainment? 
based solely around taste and around what kind of feelings it invokes in us. Ben Witherington wrote an excellent book on worship, and he said this. He said, worship is not and never was intended to be a spectator sport of the performance of a few for the benefit of the many couch potatoes in the pew. The consumer approach to worship puts the emphasis almost entirely on the wrong syllable. It leads pastors to desperately seek to change acts of worship and worship patterns in an attempt to attract a bigger crowd. The theory being that worship should be a matter of giving the people what they want and crave. This is completely wrong. Worship is a matter of giving to God what he desires and requires of us. If you end up with a nice buzz because of it, that's a bonus and a byproduct. It's not what worship is striving for. He continues, the most important act on earth is worship. The chief aim of worship is that we be caught up in wonder, love, and praise of God and thereby get a glimpse of the heavenly worship which happens when and as we are worshiping. It's precisely that kind of worship that needs to be recovered. But not just in the context of the church, you understand. What needs to be recovered is a profound and overwhelming sense of the beauty and greatness of God. Because a recovery of that, a renewed intentional posture of adoration, will fix both anemic self-focused worship and a life that has pushed God to the fringes. And this psalm helps guide us by showing us ways in which we can refocus and reorient in order that we might worship God, verse 1, with all that is within us. Psalm 103, as I mentioned, is a thanksgiving psalm. And if you look, you see the heading is attributed to David. And uh, commentators think this is at the end, towards the end of his life. He's looking back at all the wisdom he has curated. And it was meant to be sung in corporate worship this psalm. In essence, the psalmist is calling on himself to worship God with his entire being. He begins by speaking to himself. Did you see that? He's addressing himself and commanding himself to bless the Lord. And you'll note, if you have your copy of God's Word, bless the Lord, that three-word phrase appears six times in 22 verses. And the psalm is even bookended by it, isn't it? What does it mean to bless the Lord? John Piper describes it like this. He says it means to speak well of his greatness and goodness. <coughs> Excuse me. And really mean it from the depths of your soul. That's what blessing the Lord means. It means to speak well of God's greatness and goodness and really mean it from the depths of your soul. So it isn't as if you and I can add. That's kind of the way we think of the word bless, right? That we could add anything to God. We can't. So when we bless God, we're praising him, we're esteeming him, we are recounting his character and greatness and deeds, we're giving him what he deserves, which is all that we have and more. So the psalmist calls on himself, did you notice that? To bless the Lord with his soul and all that is within him, which means his emotions, his mind, and his will, all his faculties. The worship he is calling himself to is worship that issues from a decision made. He is deciding to worship God with all of his faculties, and this worship flows out to how he lives day to day. The psalmist, you understand, don't you see it? He's making a conscious decision 
He is not at all interested in whether he feels like worshiping or not. He is deciding, he is commanding himself to worship God with his entire being. So where we are typically driven by feelings is not our society. society. Doesn't society tell us that what we feel somehow automatically becomes truth? I think one of the most asinine phrases of our day is my truth and your truth. If we feel it, it becomes truth. That's not how truth works, by the way, right? But feelings decide what's true for us. That society is telling us all the time that that is how we ought to live. The psalmist comes into this and he models for us what it means to simply decide to worship God. And he gives us a ton of reasons. And while feelings aren't unimportant, they shouldn't be the rulers of our lives. Worship should be a decision. It should be something we tell ourselves we will do. If you feel like worshiping God, great. If you don't, do it anyway. Tell yourself, soul, bless the Lord, and then do it. The psalmist is reminding himself to, verse 2, not forget all of God's benefits. And he is not at all, again, interested in whether or not he feels like worshiping or praising God. He instructs himself. He calls on himself. He commands himself to worship God with all that he has, and that begins with, this is important, remembering. Doesn't he command himself, forget not. Forgetfulness may just be the leading cause of all or most of what ails us. Why is worship anemic? Why is it consumeristic? Why do Christians fight and divide and bicker? Why is biblical church membership lacking? Why do our personal relationships seem so strained? On and on and on we could go, but they all seem inextricably tied to forgetting the gospel of who God is, and, and truly to take account of who we are. Are we not a forgetful people? Everybody in here has walked into a room and forgot why they're there, right? Like, we are a forgetful people, and forgetting gets us in a lot of trouble. You look at Israel, Israel got in trouble over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Why? Because they forgot they forgot God and who he is and what he's done. Every time that God had to come and rebuke them or punish them or threaten them with exile, he reminded them of his grace to them, and usually it was throwing back to the Exodus event, a grace that they forgot because if they hadn't forgotten, they wouldn't have been in those predicaments, right? I mean, haven't we seen this in Exodus, in our study of Exodus? Like over and over again, it took them less than a week after being rescued by the mighty hand of God through the plagues and the sea to grumble and complain at Mara and question God's goodness and care. <laughs> then they did it again and again and again. Quickly, they forgot all God had done his promise. His forgetting led them to not, not to worship, but to sin. Forgetting the Lord's goodness is what dilutes praise. Forgetting who God is and who we are and what God has done is the first step towards spiritual disaster. And a failure to praise the Lord is symptomatic of a deeper heart problem. So this is our task this morning. This is what it'll be. Let's see three major things we must remember and remind ourselves of and one another of at every opportunity, okay? And these are simple, okay? Simple, straightforward things to remember. Number one, remember who God is. 
Remember who God is. Or to put it another way, why should you bless the Lord with all of your faculties? The answer is right there, right? Because of who he is. Did you notice as we read the psalm how many characteristics the psalmist gives for God? And this is something psalmists and biblical authors will do. They simply recount who God is, and that helps them in whatever situation they happen to find themselves in. See, we can tend to either forget who God is or to think of him in ways that are not true or only partly true or true but are flat. And by that I mean we can highlight only one or two of God's characteristics and we can caricature him in a way that fits what we wish to be most true of him. Thus, our thoughts and portrayals of him are flat. They're one-dimensional. I think of action movies. And since it's summer, you know, this is typically when these big blockbuster movies come out, right? And it's especially in, like, action movies that are prone to having... They're, they're dumb, right? Like, aren't action movies, like, I mean, like, mentally, like, you don't really have to think very hard because their characters are, are they're one-dimensional. They're flat. They're the type of characters that Nick Cage would never play, Right? Because his acting skills are so incredible that even if the script had him play a one-dimensional character, he, he would take it and make the character have like 40 dimensions, right? But a lot of times in action movies or, or, or poorly written films, you'll have these heroes and villains that there's just not much to. You know, you, you don't invest in them. You don't care what happens to them because they're not nuanced. They're not rounded. Tim Keller says this is how a lot of people view God, because I bet if you were to ask most Americans, they would say they believe in God. But their views of him are truncated. They're, they're flat. They're one-dimensional. He, he says they might believe in God as a great force, right? Or a benevolent grandfather, or a stern judge, or a loving friend, or the God who is the cause of all things, but he kind of keeps his hand off of creation. They choose what they want to believe in God, and there is thus no personal engagement, and their lives reflect that flat portrayal. God is far more complex than what people think, especially when people tend to favor characteristics of God over other characteristics. If, for example, you talk all about God's grace, but never about his wrath or justice, you are flattening God out and ironically robbing grace of its power. If you talk all about God's wrath and justice, but never his grace, then God becomes like this harsh taskmaster who's just mad at you all the time. The biblical God is complex, and you must hold in tension all of his characteristics to get a better picture of who he is and to have a true and meaningful relationship with him. You look at what the psalmist says, and you notice that the true focus of this psalm, right, is away from the psalmist and towards the character and activity of Yahweh because that's wor what worship must be, else it isn't worship. It must all be focused on God. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful. These are characteristics. He is merciful and gracious. He is what? slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But he's also, according to the psalm, sovereign judge and ruler full of unmeasured grace, for he removes sins as far as east is from the west. He's also a father who shows compassion. He's someone who should be feared with a reverent and holy fear. He is all-knowing because he knows our frame, right? He knows how we were formed. He knows from whence we came, which is dust. 
And you look at 15 and 16, it tells us how transient we are, doesn't it? But then you go to 17, which is intended to contrast 15 and 16. It says, but the Lord is not like that. His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. He's the ultimate king, according to this psalm. His throne is in heaven, and the earth is his footstool, which means he's creator. He rules over all things, and all things were created in order to give him praise. <coughs> and even if you look at the things God does, of which we'll look at in a minute, there's a ton listed here. Even those tell of his characteristics, right? So if you look at verse 3, and he forgives iniquity, it must mean that sin is an offense to him. And that he is not obligated to forgive. He's a judge. But the fact that he does forgive emphasizes his grace and mercy. That he, verse 9, doesn't always chide means he does at times chide. That he does not keep his anger forever means he does express anger. But his mercy limits it by his own loving volition. Do you see? God is clearly here portrayed as so far above all things as creator, judge, and king, but he is also intimately connected to his creatures as a father to those who fear him, and a loving redeemer to debtors and savior and champion of the oppressed. But none of the facts about what God does, which we'll look at again in a minute, can be appreciated as they ought unless you begin to see just how truly great he is. Truly, let me ask this, okay? How often do you consider the incredible greatness and bigness of God? Like, how often do you just sit in quiet contemplation and just dwell on God's power and might and sovereignty? When was the last time about you thought about how maximally great he is and holy and wise and just and unfathomable and untamable he is? When was the last time you, you simply just considered how altogether fearsome, awesome, magnificent, splendid, incomprehensible, and infinitely powerful he is? And when was the last time you realized that those are the same characteristics that Jesus and the Holy Spirit who indwells you share? I forget sometimes. Do you? I bet you do. I really think, I really do think dwelling on just who God is as described in Scripture would change a lot about how we worship and even how we live. Do you guys realize how incredible he is? The answer has to be what? No. I just consider our universe, okay? I think this is a good illustration. Sam Storms offers this, and uh, he says, you think about our universe. Our sun is 93 million miles from Earth. If we scaled the Earth down to the size of a grapefruit, the moon would be a ping-pong ball about 12 feet away, and the sun would be a ball of fire the size of a four-story building a mile away. And Pluto would be a marble 37 miles away. Okay, let's, let's say you wanted to travel to the sun, okay, in our universe. And you went on a, in a plane going 500 miles an hour. It would take you 21 years to get there. If you went to Pluto, you'd be in the air for more than 900 years. If we flew on the same plane 
To the nearest star in planetary system to us, Alpha Centauri, it would take six million years. By comparison, the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, is 2.5 million light years away, or 15 quintillion miles. That's 15 with 18 zeros. Our trip to Andromeda by plane would take us 4.2 trillion years. As of a few years ago, the furthest galaxy the Hubble telescope had been able to detect was 13 billion light years from Earth. That's 78 sextillion miles away, which is a 78 with 21 zeros. It would take us 20 quadrillion years to get there flying 500 miles an hour. And this space isn't empty, is it? It's full of stars. Our galaxy alone has between 150 to 200 billion. And that's just one galaxy out of over 200 billion galaxies. And there are more stars, did you know this? There are more stars in the galaxies of the universe than grains of sand on the seashore. And Psalm 147 says God has named them all. And each one, Psalm 19 says, exists to glorify their God. Or consider this, as many stars are, as there are, which there are more than grains of sand, there are still less stars than there are H2O molecules in 10 drops of water. Now you, you guess who holds all of that together by a word. Guess who put all that there? So mighty is this God that he spoke and all of the vast universe was put into place. Just spoke and ex nihilo, out of nothing. All things in our vast, complicated, unmeasurable universe were put in their place. No problem for this God. We didn't break a sweat. Every blade of grass, every grain of sand, every leaf, every drop of water is accounted for by this God. Every thought, every heartbeat of every creature is accounted for by him. Not a star burns out. Not a leaf hits the ground. Not a raindrop splashes into a puddle without his divine direction or permission. Now you tell me, friend, is this God worthy of your worship and your praise? Is he worthy of your ceaseless adoration? Is he worth being made much of? Is he worthy of being the center of your life? Is he worthy of being worshipped with your whole being? You wonder why I get so fired up about consumeristic worship and preference-driven church membership? This is why. Because words, there's no words that the tongue could speak to describe the greatness of this God. And I know my sinful heart, and I know yours, and our tendency to make things about us, but seeing God the way the Bible does shows us how egregious that is. I mean, do you see how great he is? But you know what else will help? Not only remembering and considering God's greatness, point two, remembering who we are. Remembering who we are. We saw who God is, but this, is, this psalm also reminds us of who we are. It's important that we remember this in order to worship and live rightly. Again, you think of how vast and great God is, unmeasurably glorious, awesome, unfathomable, utterly amazing. And what are we like? 
Well, look through the psalm and see <laughs> that the fact, again, that we need to be remind, that we need to remind our own souls of things. Now, we need to tell ourselves to not forget all his benefits means we are prone to forget things. We are limited in our brains. That, that we need to be forgiven of iniquity and sins means we are transgressors, incapable of perfectly keeping God's law. That we need to be healed of disease means we are frail. We fall into pits. We need renewal. We can easily be oppressed. We are worthy of being chided by God, which is why it's amazing, verse 9, that he doesn't chide or keep his anger forever. Then again, verse 10, we have mention of our sins and iniquity again. Verses 14 through 16 especially remind us of our frailty and weakness, don't they? God knows your frame, or literally, God knows how you were formed, right? Because he's the one who, according to Psalm 119, he did it. But you are dust. Does it say that? You are dust. Think about that. Is that how you would describe yourself? Dust? God is infinite greatness who is not bound by space and time and can create by just speaking, and what are we? Dust. You still think worship should be about you? But look, the psalmist thinks of he, he, he uses some from his own context. He thinks of the grass and hills and the flowers of Israel and uses that to illustrate what we're like. The hills, they're brown. Flowers, dead. And then the rain comes. And, and, and the landscape is transformed, made green, and the flowers bloom, and it's magnificent. But then what happens? Scorching sun comes out, violent wind rips through the landscape, and the grass dies. Flower withers. Everything's brown again. All that is gone without a trace, as if it were never there. <laughs> David says that's what you and I are like. I think of, uh, you remember the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life? Which it would have been better if Nick Cage was in it. I'm just kidding. He wasn't born yet. That's <laughs> the trope, you know the trope it popularized, right? You remember, George found himself in a heap of trouble, right? And he wished, he was suicidal, and he wished he had never been born. And so an angel comes and does what? He shows him what life would have been like for that town and for his family if he had never actually been born. And so everything is worse, of course, and it's unbearable to him. He thought it was bad that he had lived the way he did, but he found out not having existed and no one knowing him was far worse. The most painful thing, the most painful thought for him was for no one to ever know he had existed. And this is a dread I think most people share. We spend a lot of time and money and energy on our legacies. We want to be remembered. We want to leave a mark. But we can't escape the fact that we won't. At least not for long. You can work very hard for example, for a very long time so you can make money in which to build, spend on building a dope dream house and it might happen and you might live in it, but eventually it's going to be abandoned or caved in. It's just a matter of time. Everything you own is on a different level of being garbage. Do you know that? You can spend time and resources and politic so everyone knows who you are, but eventually you'll be forgotten. I bet you, you probably know your grandpa's name. 
And you might know his dad's name, and maybe his dad's name. But I bet for most of you, you don't, you don't know who your great-great-grandpa was. You don't even know his name or what he did for a living. This man's blood courses through your veins. He's literally your kin and existed just a couple generations ago, and you don't know him. He's just gone. And it's like he never existed. At some point, as Conan O'Brien said, all of our graves go unvisited. And this doesn't mean that our lives don't matter, but the psalmist is showing us how transient and frail we are. I mean, he compares us to grass and dust. Some of you mowed your lawn yesterday. <laughs> what happened to that grass? I mean, that grass just got there. <laughs> and you took a blade to it, and now it's, it's like it never was ever there. That is what the psalmist says we are like. Now compare that to what God is like and who he is. David does that, as noted in the very next verse, verse 17. He says, but the Lord and his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. I imagine a lot, a lot of our overinflated sense of self-importance would fade if we just put these things side by side. 14 through 17. It's hard to have an ego when you're dust. It's hard to insist on first place when you're grass. And again, apart from our transience, we are transgressors, right? Is that not what the psalmist says? Without gracious forgiveness on part of the judge, we'd be utterly crushed and justly so. That, verse 10, God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us for our iniquity means that he could rightly do those things. His, but his mercy speaks a different word. That God doesn't hold on his anger forever means in ourselves we are targets for his righteous anger because of our sin. You know, talk like that is unpopular because we want to be told that we are worthy of good things, don't we? I mean, that's all, is that not all of what modern marketing tells us? How worthy of good things we are. We are worthy of that dream job that makes us happy, that partner who fulfills us and completes us, that house of our dreams, that fat bank account, that trouble-free life. And we can think we're even worthy of God's love and good gifts and prosperity. It's not that, is that not what the prosperity gospel tells us and self-help books, even if they're under a Christian banner, tell us? You are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. As Matt Chandler said, we all carry an insidious prosperity gospel around in our dark, little, entitled hearts. What we are worthy of is to be crushed under the boot of the sovereign God, whom we have voluntarily and freely transgressed. The vast cosmos we talked about earlier, think about this, okay? This vast cosmos, we don't even, we don't even know how many galaxies there are. Our, our telescopes can't even get to the edge of the universe. We don't, we don't know so many things. This vast, vast, vast cosmos, all of it obeys God without a second thought. All of it. Stars, planets, black holes, oceans, mountains, leaves, flowers, birds, you name it, it obeys. But then you get to man. Us. We are the only thing in all of the cosmos who look at God and have the audacity to say no. What do we deserve? What are we worthy of? 
destruction, wrath, God's anger. And I think we forget this because we get wrapped up in comparing ourselves to other people and telling ourselves, we tell ourselves how awesome we are all the time. Who's more right than you are? Right? Wouldn't everything be solved if you were president? <laughs> and every member of Congress, and wouldn't it? We think we're the most right about everything. And we get wrapped up in comparing ourselves to the worst person we know. And we're better than them. Right? We forget we are frail sinners. It reminds me of something Spurgeon said, and he preached many sermons through this psalm. And he was talking about a guy named John, John Barrage. And he said he was an odd, he was as odd as he was good. <laughs> and this man in his room, he had a number of pictures of ministers or, or people from like church history around his room. And next to the portraits was a mirror that had the same frame as all the portraits, okay? And he would take people around the room and he would say, you know, that's Calvin, that's John Bunyan. And when he took the person to the mirror, he would say, and that is the devil, why, the friends would say, it is myself. Ah, said John, there is a devil in us all. We don't, we don't think like that. But it's important to remember who we are, that we are dust and grass and sinners deserving of our just desserts, but not so that we could kind of be like navel-gazing, sorrowful, and downcast people. But because, this is important, okay, once you get who God is, and who you are, seeing what God has done for you will be all the more amazing. That's what this whole thing is leading to. All of you feel like trash right now. You're like, man, you're mean, right? I'm not telling you anything the Bible doesn't tell you, right? Or speak about me. But we got to see it. We got to see how awesome God is, how not awesome we are, to be amazed and astounded by what he's done. Because uh, we aren't amazed by grace because we forget that this incredible gulf that exists between us and God and that this gap would exist always and forever without a move on the part of God to come and take the initiative to bridge that gap. We fancy ourselves as worthy recipients of salvation and worthy objects of grace. But when we see God's infinity compared to our smallness and, and transience, then when we see God's incredible moves of grace, we will be left flat on our face. When you truly remember these things, you won't be in a worship gathering on Sunday morning looking at your watch or racing out before the last song or hoping that you get what you want out of it. You'll be eagerly anticipating giving this God worship because of who he is and what he's done for dust. So let's look at that. Last thing, number three. What God has done. Maybe you noticed when you read this, there's a natural division in this psalm. Verses 1 through 5, the psalmist is recounting what God has done for him. Okay? And then in 6 through 18, he's recounting what God has done for others and for the nation. So let's look at what God has done. Verse 3, he forgives iniquity. How much iniquity? How much? How much? How much? He heals disease, verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. Have you ever been in the pit before? I bet you have. Maybe, you, maybe you're like, Vaughn, I'm in the pit right now. Check this out. He doesn't just redeem you from the pit. He comes into the pit 
with you to redeem your life. He enters the pit. If you feel like you're in the pit, guess what you should do? Tell your soul, remind your soul that in Christ you have a pit-taking champion who delights to redeem you from it. And he crowns you, and that was he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. When Augustine preached his sermon on this text 1,500 years ago, he said, listen, pay attention to the psalm and see how the crown refuses to fit a swollen head. You were in the pit, he came and rescued you, he's the one who crowns you, but your ego forgets that you were in the pit you made and deserve, you, your head will be too big for the crown. You don't deserve a crown, you gotta see that, but he crowns you anyway. And you must realize that you don't deserve it. But verse 5, he also satisfies with good. Everyone, is this true? Everyone is looking for satisfaction, yes? Isn't that true? Lastly, isn't that not the human condition? But what we aim at to satisfy is what continually leaves us empty. The problem isn't that we desire to be satisfied. It's that we look to be satisfied both by our own might and for satisfaction in things of earth. You've heard this quote before, I bet. C.S. Lewis famously preached a sermon titled The Weight of Glory. And he said this, If we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis wasn't saying that we are easily pleased in the things we aim for. He was saying that we are even too pleased with the aims themselves. You think you'll be satisfied if you have enough money? The right house or the right spouse, the right amount of vacations or the right job, the right this and that, but no one ever really stops the chase. It's an ongoing process. We always want the next and the next and the better and the more. Even those in poverty believe if they just had a little more, they'd finally be full. What's missing, like Lewis and Augustine said before him, is the realization that we were made to long for and be satisfied by something more. Or better yet, someone who is more. The psalmist is satisfied with good because the good that satisfies is God alone. He's satisfied because he's in a relationship with this transcendent God who delights to rescue former rebels from the pits and redeem their life and toss their sins into the sea never to be seen from again. It is in the steadfast love of God that the psalmist finds his home. Is that where you find your home, I wonder? What God did was renew the psalmist like an eagle. Isn't that what he says? You know that, did you know that eagles shed their feathers when they're young and they get all new feathers? Totally new set of feathers. They're renewed. And this is what satisfaction of God brings. He makes you new. He renews your life. He gives you new vigor and passions and desires. And David doesn't just recount what God has done for him. He recounts what God has done for others and the nation beginning in verse 6. Why? This is what John Golden Gay said. He said, the psalm implies that we do not understand the significance of our personal experience of God's grace unless we see them in light of Yahweh's act in relation to the community. 
See, we don't just remember what God has done for us as individuals, but we, what He has done for others in the community of the redeemed. And that too causes us to rejoice. What has God done for others? Well, verse 6, He works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He sees the plight of the outcast and the marginalized. He sees the mighty pushed down on the weak, and He sides with the lowly. It is those who oppress who will not have their sins forgotten because God sees and remembers and vindicates the oppressed. God also, verse 7, does not keep his acts hidden, but puts them on display like he did with the plagues in Red Sea. God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's always chide, as we have seen, and he doesn't keep his anger forever towards those who are his. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Though he could, right? And he would be right and just to do so, he doesn't. Why? Is it because of what we did? For you, of course not, because you could not, I could not pay off our debt, but someone has to pay. It doesn't just go away. The punishment doesn't just go away. I want you to think about this, okay? Think about this. Everybody, listen. The same God who fits all the characteristics of transcendence and glory and acts of creation and power and might and holiness is the same God who came and entered into the pit in order to bear on the cross all of your transgressions and sins. The same God, are you getting this? The same God who placed every star and every grain of sand and every blade of grass, the same God who all of creation worships is the same God who hung naked and alone on a Roman cross to absorb the wrath that you and I stored up. So when verse 10 and 11, God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities, it's because Jesus stepped in and was treated according to your sins and punished according to your iniquities. In this, God showed, verse 11, how his love for you is as high as the heavens. How high are the heavens? How far above us? It's immeasurable. How much does he love you? Immeasurably. You remember the old hymn, The Love of God is Far Greater? The third verse goes like this, so good. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You think of that vast the universe is that we talked about earlier, God's love can't even fit into it. And again, who is this love for? Who, who does he love this way? Transient people who rebelled against him and can be compared to dust and grass. Yet he loves them with a love unfathomable. Because of Christ, what does he do with your sins according to verse 12. He takes them and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Golden Gate says this, for the ancient reader, the height of the sky over the earth and the span of the east from the west suggests the greatest imaginable distance. For the modern reader, the comparison is even more striking because we know that the distance between heaven and earth and between east and west is actually infinity. 
If we went 500 miles per hour to the furthest reaches of space that the best telescope man has invented could see, it would take us 20 quadrillion years to get there, and that's not even close to the edge of the universe because it goes on and on further than that, than more we know or ever will. And guess what? Because of Jesus, your transgressions have been removed even further than that. It gets better. Can you believe it? Verse 13 says, God is Father to those who fear him. And his father, he shows us compassion. Like a loving father, this amazing, powerful, indescribable God entered flesh to die on our behalf so that we, he could draw us in and have compassion on us like a loving father. Are you guys getting this? I mean, are you kidding? Can you believe this gospel? How incredible is this? I know we're Baptists and we've got to be stoic, but Judas Priest, look at his gospel. This transcendent God entered flesh to die for you. Grass, dust, smoke that's here for a little while is gone like it never was here at all. And he wants to be your father too? Now speaking on this verse, verse 13, Spurgeon said this. He, he, he calls compassion pity. But he says, you know, we, we have often seen that, that pity of contempt. Like people look and pity people, but it's, it has an, a tinge of contempt. He said, but this is not the kind of pity that God has on us. He never pities his people in a way of contempt, and a father never pities his children. There isn't any contempt with God's pity, he says. He sees what we are and pities us, but there is not a solitary grain of contempt for any of his people in this pity. He said, some people's pity is a pity of inaction. Oh, I do pity you very much, says a person to a sick woman. Your husband is dead, your children have to be supported, and you have to work hard. Well, my good woman, I pity you very much, but I can't afford to give you anything. I have so many calls upon me. So how much pity there is of that kind in the world? You get that pity sort of in abundance. If you lift the knocker of the first door you come to, you will get plenty of pity of that kind. Pity is the cheapest thing in the world if that's all it is. But God's pity is not pity of that sort. It is not the pity, which is mere pity. It is not the pity of inaction. But when his heart moves, his hands move too. And he relieves all the wants of those he pities. That's so good. God sees us and those who have been adopted through Christ who are his true children. And he sees us in our dust-like state and he pities us. He has compassion on us. A loving, as a loving compassion of a father who sees their child struggle and comes up beside them and help them in their task without chiding or degrading. But he does correct because he wants our good. Spurgeon also noted how seeing God's fatherly compassion will help us to not boast. He said, oh, boast not, believer. Be not thou loud in praise of yourself. Put your finger on your lips and be silent when you hear that God pities you. The next time carnal security would creep in or fleshly conceit would get the upper hand of you, remember that while you are boasting, God is pitying and while you are triumphing, he is looking down upon you with a pitying eye of compassion, for he finds reason for compassion when you can only see cause for glory. And who are all these benefits for? Who does God do all these things for? Those, verse 18, who are in covenant with him, which implies that at one point we were not in covenant with him. And why are we now in covenant with him? because of the initiative and work of Christ. What does God expect from those who come in covenant with him because of Christ? He expects them to respond, right? 
quickly, let me give you three, just three quick application points. Okay, let's fire these things off. How to respond to remembering who God is and who we are and what he's done. Three, quickly. First, he expects you and I will know and remember his commands and then pursue them. Now we will know and remember his commands and then pursue them. Is that not what verse 18 says? As plain as day. Verse 17 says, His love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. And this covenant involves, like verse 1 and 2, reminding yourself and paying attention intentionally about what God has said and commanded. It means studying His Word because how can you obey commands you don't know? It means being mindful of them and taking them seriously and doing what they say. And this isn't because you are trying to gain some kind of acceptance. Clearly, with everything that we've said and everything this psalm says, you're already accepted in Christ. You obey from love, from mercy, from acceptance, through grace. Second response is we should fear him. Did you see the mention of fearing the Lord in verses 11 and 13? This clearly isn't some kind of fear of the Lord in that the psalmist is afraid that God will strike him down or something like that in the way that we might think of fear. This is a loving, reverent, familial fear. Michael Reeves, in his excellent book, Rejoice and Tremble, that I think you should buy, describes this kind of biblical fear like this. He says, we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. Right fear does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but it falls leaning towards the Lord. The biblical theme of the fear of God shows us that God does not want passionless performance or vague preference of him. To encounter the living, holy, and all-gracious God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. And then number three, our third response is that we should worship him. How does the psalm end? It ends with a call for all creation to worship Yahweh. And guess what? All of creation is worshiping him as we speak and at all times. All things exist for the glory of the Lord. And there's a multitude, do you realize this? Around the throne right now, singing holy, holy, holy. Now the question to you is, will you join all of creation in worshiping him? Truly. Not just in the company of saints on Sunday morning, but in your day-to-day life. Let me ask you. What would your worship look like if you spent more time thinking about who God is? Would it change? How would your worship change if you spent more time thinking about and remembering the goodness of the Lord in your life and in the life of others? Say to your soul today, soul, bless the Lord. Tell yourself that you will praise him with all that you've got. Remind yourself every day of all his benefits, all his greatness, and your unworthiness of, and of his great mercies he has shown to you in a host of ways, but supremely through Christ. 